Financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report with Michael Hartzman and Dominic Tavella. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets, telling you what may be coming next, investment opportunities, and what to avoid. Now, here are your hosts, Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman. All right, I'm Michael Hartzman. Today is Tuesday, January 4th, 2022. On with my partner at always, Dominic Tavella. How are you, Dom? Uh, doing well, doing very well, and happy, happy new year, Mike. Uh, glad to get this old year out of the way, and the new year, hopefully a much, much better one, a much healthier one in front of us. Happy new year to you too, my friend, and I echo those sentiments. And you know what? Based on that, let's just jump into some statistics for 2021, um, heading into the year, you know, we're coming up on the one year anniversary of the insurrection. We had a new president. Everyone was worried about taxes and inflation. And, and lo and behold, Dom, we had a pretty good year in the market in spite of all those worries and, and, and that, and that um, event at the Capitol, which, which no one saw coming in the beginning of the year. Um, in spite of all that, the S&P was up 28.7. The Dow Jones was up 20. Point nine, and the NASDAQ, which is mostly tech, was up 22.2. So a pretty good year all around. But what was really interesting, Dom, the two big sectors that did the best were energy was up 54%, real estate was up 46%. And you know, like I do, that the year prior, those were two of the worst sectors in the market. And in 2021, they were literally the two best sectors in the market. Yeah, and it, it always seems like it works that way, right, Mike, that uh, last year winners are not necessarily this year's winners and last year's losers. But whatever reason, usually there's an economic issue behind them. Um, they recover, recoup. Um, and the economy last year really did recover. And what's, I think, surprising, um, uh, not so much that, that we ended up where we ended up as, as where the sentiment was one year ago today. And you already alluded to, to the events that we had in Washington. We certainly had a new administration coming and it was all this worry and stress about what this new administration would do to the economy, the possibility of higher taxes and higher regulation, corporate and personal. And then, of course, you know, the, the, what would uh, uh, the coronavirus at that point, we were up on our third variant. I'm not even sure anymore. I get lost track. Um, but there was all this trepidation and worry and fear. And we certainly, we brought this up in the past, we certainly had many clients like, let's just get out of the market completely. Let's just go to cash. Let's wait and see what happens. And of course, had they done that, would have missed out on one of the best years we've had in the markets in a very, very long time. Yeah. And, and you know, it's also part of a trend because um, this is the eighth out of the last 10 years where the market has been up. And not just up, it's been up pretty substantially each and every year. But yeah, another 30% is a pretty, pretty impressive um, year for the market, especially because 2020 was a good year for the market as well. So it was, well, it was for us, Mike. Uh, and uh, I don't want to spend too much time on that subject. We've covered it already. But a significant portion of the market did not have a very good 2020. A significant portion, over 50% of the stocks in the S&P were not only down, but were down double digit for the year. And those are the very same companies, energy that specifically, that did very well this year, right? So um, we were fortunate in 2020, very fortunate in 2021 in our allocation. Um, but that's that's not quite the norm for just about everybody out there. Right. And we say it all the time. It's not just having your money in the market. It's having you know, where in the, in the market is your money. And, and we did get fortunate. Um, you know, I'm going to call it luck. But we, we overweighted in 2020 uh, healthcare and, and technology. And that worked out well. And in 2021, we, tip, we did tiptoe into energy. Um, probably more than a tiptoe. We, you know, we, we made put some money in that sector. Um, financials, which did well. So, um, yeah. And, and value stocks, right, Mike? I mean, we, we virtually had, uh, I won't say no exposure in value in 2020, but very limited 
Value stocks are the ones that are more economically sensitive. You don't want to own those kind of companies. Think about the hotels and the airlines and the cruise ship lines and energy, right? These are economically sensitive companies. You don't want to own them when you're going, in the middle, going into or in the middle of a recession, but certainly when you're coming out and you're looking at economic growth, those kind of companies usually recover and they had a pretty healthy recovery. In fact, uh, they, those were the leading sectors um, last year, these economic recovery stocks. Right. And with and I know a couple of our listeners must be saying, okay, you told me who the what the best sectors were. What were the worst sectors? So the worst sector was utilities, but it was only up 17.7%. And that was the worst sector in the in the in the in the Dow, uh, you know, the way the way they break down the 11 sectors. Um, and the second worst sector was consumer staples which you alluded to a lot of value companies there, but lo and behold, that was still up almost 18 and a half percent. So I think last year also, Don, was a, was a bit of an anomaly that, you know, yes, a lot of companies are better than others, but all boats seemed to rise last year at some point. Not well, as much I, as and and, and uh, the only, uh, I don't want to use the word argue against that is that it's not a specific sector, but uh, aggressive growth, speculative growth, SPACs, all these very, very high uh, speculative, high alpha type names. Many of them really, really got pummeled. Uh, we, we know the names, the Pelotons, the DocuSigns, the Zoom calls. Some of these stocks were down 30, 50, 60, 70 percent. Um, they, they got hammered pretty well. And that's a theme going forward. What, what do we expect with some of these companies and maybe areas to avoid? Fortunately, we, we really cut our holdings in that area significantly and didn't take those kind of losses, um, but, but is it probably an area to avoid for the near future anyway? Yeah, the appetite for risk definitely waned, uh, especially in the second half of 2021, there's no doubt. So listen, I know, I know people are really asking, well, we know what happened in 2021. What's going to happen in 2022? We have a great guest this evening. We have someone from the Global Markets Asset Team at J.P. Morgan. Her name is Mira Pendant. She's a CFA. She's a global market strategist. Um, we met with her a couple of weeks ago, invited her on the show, and we're really looking forward to her insight into what her and, J and her team at JP Morgan are looking for in, in the year to come. So we will be right back with Mira Pendant. Are you paying federal taxes on your cash? I work hard for my money that I keep in cash. And for the life of me, I can't imagine why anyone would want to pay federal taxes on their cash. That's why I keep my cash in the Lebenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, symbol L-E-T-A-X, Le Tax. Rates on cash are already so low, why pay federal taxes on the interest your cash earns? Remember, it's not what you earn, it's what you keep. The Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, L-E-T-A-X, may help you earn more on the cash you've worked hard for and keep more after-tax dollars in your pocket. Find out more about the fund by speaking with a Labenthal Global Advisors Private Wealth Advisor or its sponsor at dcmadvisors.com. For your hard-earned cash, why pay the tax when there's the tax? Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's not what you make. It's what you keep. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax-exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors, LLC, and Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC. All right, I'm Michael Hartzman, back with Dominic Tavella and this evening's guest, Mira Pendant. Global Market Strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. How are you, Mira? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on the first show of the year. 
Good evening, Mira. And uh, yeah, we're very grateful that you would join us. So uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for being here. And let's jump right in it. Great. Yeah, let's let you know, you and I met, I think it was the first week in December. Um, the Omicron variant just kind of popped on the scene a week before, right, right after Thanksgiving. And you you were very clear headed in terms of what you thought would happen in terms of this variant and, and pretty calm about the, the, the effects it would have on the economy. So why don't we just start right there and, and, and give us your view and JP's view, JP Morgan's view of, you know, how this variant uh, might play out and how it might affect the economy and the market. I mean, of course, we don't want to uh, underrepresent just the huge, severe uh, human health toll that the, the variant does pose. But from an economic and market perspective, what we have seen with some of the previous surges and in previous occurrences of new variants is that we tend to see the surges last, you know, two, maybe three months. A lot of the market impact tends to be a bit front-loaded during the period where there's the most uncertainty about how the variant will play out or how the surge will play out. And the economic impacts, while they're there, I think we have a better playbook now for understanding what they potentially will be. So I'm not necessarily seeing that we're going to have you know, brand new challenges, but certainly we're probably going to see somewhat of a prolonging of some of the challenges that already exist, whether it's some of the supply chain issues, inflation, not necessarily going to make it worse, but again, prolong a lot of the challenges that we're already seeing here. And from a scientific perspective, you know, something that you and I discussed is these variants do tend to evolve over time to become more contagious, but less severe, just because they don't want to die out themselves and they want to continue to propagate in a host. So essentially what you're seeing with Omicron is that pattern where it's spreading like wildfire, but at the same time, thus far, fatalities have not spiked and, and hospitalizations remain a little bit better than, than what we'd seen in prior surges. So, Mira, we, we've seen at least the, the preliminary data out of South Africa that this thing is spreading like Wi-Fi, but very quick, right? It looks like it, and we're hearing already data that, that it might peak as uh, early as mid to late of the part of this month and cycle down. So maybe the economic impact at least may not be anywhere near severe as the prior uh, variants. Any opinion on that? What we have seen thus far is from an activity perspective, while governments, local, state, federal, have been pretty good about not wanting to reimpose new lockdowns, uh, some of the lockdowns are forced out of circumstance. You know, workers calling out of work. I know here in New York City, there's been challenges on Broadway, in restaurants, across the board throughout the holidays. But to your point, if the duration of time that this, uh, some of these strains last is shorter, then hopefully that can um, leave us a little less under pressure than if this were to last on a multi-month timeframe. You know, you're seeing that challenge with travel as well. But if this works its way, unfortunately, through the population quickly, then perhaps we could be back to uh, that recovery path in terms of activity levels in a shorter period of time. So, Mira, before Omicron popped on the scene, the, the buzzword that Wall Street was worried about were the supply chain shortages. And, and you and I talked about that in the past. And, and if you can, um, when do you think the, you know, the supply chain shortages will abate? And how does Omicron affect that timetable that, that JP Morgan you know, has in, in terms of that loosening up? We have been seeing some improvements, uh, very early stages, but some of those supplier delivery times are coming down. We've seen some progress when we look at both shipping freight rates and, and the lines of ships outside of various ports. I think what's a very helpful fundamental is the fact that earnings were so strong last year. And what we tend to see is as earnings are really robust and profits are really robust, that gives companies the opportunity to further invest in their businesses, whether that means restocking inventories or investing in um, different technologies to help automate processes. Um, some of that stuff should help ease some of these uh, labor or, um, these supply chain challenges. And ultimately, supply chain challenges aren't new. We go through little inventory cycles within an economic cycle many, many times. It's just that we never quite have the concentrated stress that we're experiencing right now in light of 
the virus, which causes some of the lockdowns and uh, production issues in other countries, you know, again, linked to some of the labor challenges within the U.S. So um, while these are certainly, you know, very troubling times from that perspective, we're starting to see some of that improvement and hope to continue to see that into 2022. But it is a slow process. So we're not expecting things to get back to normal um, for, for several months' time. We're probably going to see some more meaningful improvement in the middle of 2022. So with this virus coming at, at the time that it is right now, you think about you know, its effect on economic growth and inflation. I guess it's a double-edged sword because if, if on one side, if you have a limited number of supplies coming in, resources coming in, workers coming in, that's going to cap out and, and there'd be more demand um, uh, and the resources aren't there. On the other hand, if people aren't working or people aren't able to fly or go out to dinner, go out to restaurants, maybe that puts less pressure on it, uh, the economy. So short-term inflation, good, bad, what, what's your interpretation of all this? Inflation is likely to also remain elevated for the first several months of, of 2022. And again, we probably won't start to see that meaningfully come down until the middle of the year. But if we think about what are the impacts from this new variant itself, on the one hand, if people are staying home and continuing to demand goods, that's going to prolong some of the challenges we have. But on the other hand, if people are staying home and not necessarily enjoying those services, that could be sort of a countervailing force. So if we think about that goods and services balance, that could actually be something that keeps inflation in place, given that kind of tug of war there, as opposed to sends it careening higher. Um, what we're also likely to see from inflation in, in the first couple of months of the year is energy prices have stabilized a bit uh, compared to where they were a few months ago moving higher. Um, and we do expect energy prices to come down. And that should actually be some component of inflation that starts to, to break a little bit as we head into 2022. But ultimately, if we look at what's driving inflation, I'd say around two thirds of it is higher energy prices and supply chain issues. Whereas one third of it is some of those stickier things like wages and rents. So if we work our way through that two thirds of stuff that's not necessarily gonna stick with us in the long run, um, that should bring us to a better place from an inflationary standpoint by the end of next year. Now, inflation is going to be higher this cycle than last cycle. And what's funny is that we spent all of last cycle wondering when is inflation going to finally pick up? When are we gonna finally see some, some real signs of it? Well, we're seeing that now, but I think that by the end of next year, if we're closer to 3% inflation as opposed to 5, 6, 7 that we've been seeing more recently, that's manageable for portfolios and for consumers. So did, did, did I hear you say correctly that you, there's a possibility that the, the next quarter print might be higher than the 7% we got last quarter? We'll have to see how the different variant factors play in and how energy prices uh, factor in, but we're probably near the, the peak with, with an inflation if we haven't hit it already. Um, it's really going to take, though, the, the better part of the first half of the year where we're going to likely continue to see elevated prints um, until we can get to a period where they start to move down lower. But we're also going to have sort of those opposite of the base effects that we had last year, where on a year-over-year -year basis, because of how low prices were in 2020, prices were just higher in 2021. But 2022 compared to 2021, just simply from a mathematical perspective, is going to start to, to moderate some of those year-over-year -year numbers. We're not going to necessarily continue to see that sort of acceleration in prices that we did last year. So we're going to start to see that play out in the prints over the course of the year. So one follow-up question. Um, the market seemed to shrug off the 7% um, inflation number we had last quarter, because I think that number was already baked in the cake. And that was kind of the, the whisper number. And, and that's what we got. It, 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 do you feel that any number higher than that going into, you know, this quarter um, would spook the market? Or is the market in its own way, it functions already prepared for a much higher print? I do think that some of the higher inflation prints are, are, are expected by the markets, or at least understanding some of those drivers, understanding that the variant could be a wild card and, and potentially cause more inflationary pressures. But I think that really what those inflation prints are doing is, is not necessarily being taken in by the market in isolation, but people are thinking, 
how is that going to impact what the Federal Reserve is going to do? If we continue to see higher inflation prints, how does that in fact impact policy? On the one hand, there's the monetary policy angle where um, those higher inflation prints could perhaps continue to put some pressure on the Fed to start hiking rates earlier than perhaps anticipated. On the other hand, there's also the fiscal side of the equation too, where higher inflation prints might deter more fiscal spending um, when we think about things like the Build Back Better Act, which got punted into this year and, and perhaps needs to undergo some changes before it's reconsidered. So on both the policy fronts, I think that's one of the reaction functions of the market from an inflation perspective. Um, Mira, I, I just want to, I love that word, sticky inflation, um, and specifically labor. I, both myself and Michael have seen this in our practice where individuals come in and they're like, sit, I'm done, I'm retiring, I'm taking my money and I'm leaving. Um, uh, many people who are still working from home, um, if they make me go to the office, I'm quitting. Um, we have a labor problem in this country. I don't think that gets resolved anytime soon. Um, and sticky might be a really appropriate word in terms of wage inflation. You guys see that easing off anytime soon? From a labor market perspective, you know, if we think about the broader dynamics, there are aspects of that which should improve, and there are aspects of that that are structural and perhaps exacerbated by the pandemic. So let's think about some of the structural things. You mentioned more people retiring. Well, certainly the health challenges for, for a certain subset of people and, and kind of people in the older brackets was more so during this recession than in any others. And also people's portfolio values held up, which enabled them to retire. So that retirement's piece is one. <laughs> Although we've long had you know, this aging population and demographics kind of shifting out of our favor, um, COVID has likely accelerated some of those impacts on the labor market. Um, we've seen, again, just broader lower participation as some people are either worried about the virus or perhaps um, you know, there's some reaction to vaccine mandates. I think that's keeping people on the sidelines to some extent, but those impacts are likely shorter lived. Um, and I think that you know, after a whole entire expansion uh, last go around of very sluggish wage growth, people have really recalibrated what their expectations are for what they, they'd like to be earning and what they should be earning um, because you know, they didn't really have that reset in wages over the course of the last expansion. This is sort of offered that opportunity. And, and you can see that um, across the board where firms are actually willing to raise wages, have that cushion given margins and, and given profitability to, to increase wages. While we do think that some of that is going to moderate throughout 2022 as well as, as people find their way back into jobs, um, you know, ultimately, the, the, the cushion that a lot of workers have from some of the various fiscal spending over the last two years um, wears thin after a while. Ultimately, people do have to pay their rent and pay their bills. Um, so I do think that's going to result in more people slowly coming back in. But again, there are some structural problems, not only due to demographics, but also, you know, due to slower pace of immigration that we've been seeing. And, and both of these issues actually predated the pandemic. It's just that we kept getting such good job growth at the end of last cycle that it was hard to really recognize that as we are this time around. So, Mary, you know, you mentioned wage growth, and 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 I'm thinking, I'm thinking a comment that the, the head of Morgan Stanley made before the before this new variant came about. If you remember, firms were getting ready to bring people back to to their offices, and I think it was the head of Morgan Stanley said. If you want to get paid like you work in New York City, you have to come to New York City. And that was his logic, you know, with, with bringing people back into the offices. So do you, do you see, corp how do you see corporate America reacting to people resisting heading back into big cities? Will, will, will that give them some cover in, in not succumbing to, to wage pressure or, or not? The real challenge is the fact that there are far more job openings than there are unemployed people. And, and people are certainly holding the line, not only in terms of wages, but also you know, ancillary benefits, whether it's flexibility, work from home, work from a different location. And you're seeing employers, big and small, who have the wherewithal to do it, 
offering some of these different, um, uh, you know, perks to workers and, and different ancillary benefits. I mean, you, you see the, the jolts number coming out this morning in terms of a record number of quits. Uh, workers right now do have quite a bit of leverage and quite a bit of bargaining power. And there's a huge war on talent. I mean, all the buzzwords, war on talent, great resignation. That's really giving um, employees the ability to, to uh bargain and negotiate for, for some of these other benefits. I don't necessarily think that means the office is dead, but I think that the shape in which we interact with offices is, is going to, to start to uh, take a different form. I, I will add, Mira, because again, we see it in our practice every day. I think clients are really emphasizing quality of life. Um, they're looking at what's going on around them and, and their life's been turned upside down. And Many cases, they've lost friends and family and they're simply choosing to go, you know what, my portfolio has done great. The value of my house now is at an all time high. My net worth is at an all time high. Maybe this is a time to walk away and, and they're literally choosing to walk away. And I think it's an ebb and a flow too. You know, right now, I think people are, are more focused on flexibility, wanting to work from home. Um, over time, I think you'll also see the pendulum swing the other way where people say, I'm not having as efficient interactions with my coworkers. You know, for people in client-facing businesses, you want to be in front of your clients and customers. So I think that there is a, a pendulum swing to this in which right now we're very much prioritizing work from home and flexibility. But there could also come a time where, uh, we start to prioritize wanting that in-person interaction and putting a premium on that. So it just changes the way uh, our work days look, the way we interact with people, and probably the way we think about our offices and real estate uh, in and of itself. You know, I was in a city um, the other night with my son, and we walked right past, you know, J.P. Morgan's new corporate headquarters under construction, and uh, it's going to be a palace but you wonder how many people are actually going to have in it um, if, if, if all companies are having a hard time getting people to come back to the office. Well, ultimately, you do build the office for the highest traffic time. And the, the longer term plan is to have as many people back as, as frequently as possible. And if that's the case, then you want to make sure you're equipped for that. I also think the way offices are going to be built is going to be built for different purposes. Can we facilitate more digital interaction and, and technology within an office space to make sure that people can have a mix of in-person and digital interactions? Do you see more communal working spaces, conference areas, uh, able, uh, you know, the ability to convene and cooperate? So that's what I really mean by things are going to start to shift as opposed to completely turn away from office culture. Makes sense. Mira, we are bumping up against a break and we have a million other things to go over with you. So we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back with Mira Pendant. Financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report with Michael Hartsman and Dominic Tavella. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets. Now, back to the Labenthal Report. I'm Michael Hartsman, back with Dominic Tavella and Mira Pendit. Mira, let me ask you this. Dominic and I, every day, get asked the question, well, what do you guys think is going to happen next? You know, what, what's going to happen in 2022? And our job is easy because we just say, well, we talk to people much smarter than us. And, and this is what they think. And, and one of the groups that we rely on a lot is the group you're a part of, you know, David Kelly, who, who I guess the chief economist there. Um, and if I got his title wrong, I apologize. But, but we, uh, we count on you guys a lot. And just tell us a little bit how you guys make that sausage. You know, we, we, we act like you guys have a crystal ball. We know you don't actually have a crystal ball but you seem to have access to a ton of information and you seem to be right way more often than you're wrong. So just bring us through that process if you can. That's right. We don't have a crystal ball and we don't uh, see our job as predicting the future, but rather really seeing the present with clarity, understanding the data, formulating our opinions based on what we're seeing uh, going on right now, you know, using the past as a guide, but not necessarily a, a strict guideline, um, and, and really putting all the pieces together to try to come up with where do we think things stand now and how could that shape up? 
uh, again, not a prediction, but really just trying to make um, a good educated understanding of, of how this scenario plays out right now and, and how the different paths it could take, you know, kind of going forward. So um, we, we use the analogy of the crystal ball that works perfectly going backwards and not so good going <laughs> forwards. But, but we are asked, as Mike said, every day, I'm, I'm sure you guys are the same every day. So what, what are you guys thinking going forward? What, what, what are you, your perspective on everything that's happening right now? And what do you think short term, longer term? How is this year going to play out? Well, if we think about where we've been and where we're going, 2020 was very much the year of the recession. 2021 was the year of the recovery and 2022 is likely to be the year of normalization when we move from recovery to recovered because by many measures 2021 was a really strong year i mean you mentioned equity market performance we talked a little bit about earnings the policy backdrop was favorable and it's not that we see any of that necessarily going away entirely in 2022 but it's going to look a little bit more like a normal expansion as opposed to those early phases so we're going to start to see monetary policy become less accommodative, fiscal policy become less accommodative. Earnings should still be strong, and, and we do think that equity market performance should hold up this year, perhaps not quite as robustly as last year. But um, nonetheless, it's, it's going to be an environment where we want to be really selective about what we're investing in because, you know, Michael, you said this early, early on in the podcast about, about 2021 in which you know, a boat, rising tide lifts all boats. It's going to be um, much more of an environment where we want to really think through different things that we're investing in. So on, on that note, I think we've been, three of us have been really re, um, talking about the U.S. market for the most part this evening. Um, do you have a, a take on the rest of the world and, and, and their recovery and the, and the outlook for the, for the global markets? People have been very skeptical about international equities for a long time. And that is somewhat warranted given the fact that the U.S. has continued to outperform international markets for many years as well. But hopefully what we're likely to see in 2022 is a bit of a turning of the tide on the growth front. You know, in the U.S., if we're moving from recovery to recovered, we haven't really seen that proper recovery take hold in many parts of the world internationally. And yet we're seeing that vaccination rates uh, in Europe, Japan, parts of Asia are exceeding the US. So we do anticipate areas like Europe and Japan, some of the other developed markets are going to start to recover in a more meaningful way in the, the first half of the year. And then in emerging markets, probably a more durable recovery in the second half of the year. And that should benefit equities abroad, not only because they'll be experiencing their recoveries, but because they tend to be um, more exposed to some of the more cyclical areas of market. And you mentioned earlier up front, areas like financials, uh, industrials, energy. And if they have more exposure there, and those are the types of things that tend to do well early on in recoveries, then that should help international earnings and it should help performance abroad as well. Mira, uh, we have so much liquidity in the system. Um, I think that was one of the major reasons volatility really wasn't. I mean, if you ask a client, they'll say we had a lot of volatility the last year. But the truth is, I don't think the S&P got to more than a 5% pullback. And the NASDAQ maybe a little bit more. Uh, getting back to normal, to me, means maybe some more, maybe much more volatility this year. What, what, what you guys, how are you guys feeling about that? If we take a look back to the early 1980s, we see on average a 14% drawdown every single year, if we look at the last 42 years. But within those last 42 years, 32 out of those 42 years, the S&P 500 ended up positive at the end of the year. So we should expect a certain amount of volatility every single year, and yet investors are often rewarded for sticking with their investment plan riding out some of the more challenging periods with positive returns at the end of the year. Um, what I'd also say is because we know that there's going to be some degree of volatility, and maybe what I'd underscore is the only thing unknown about volatility is what's going to cause the next bout of volatility or when is it going to happen, not if it's going to happen. 
So since we know it will happen, um, that's why we diversify portfolios. That's why um, even in rising rate environments where it's very challenging for fixed income, we still own a certain amount of bonds to have that portfolio ballast. We have a little bit in the US, we have a little bit in international because that's ultimately our protection against volatility combined with a longer term time horizon because those uh, volatile returns do tend to be smoothed out over longer periods of time. So those are some of our best defenses. But yes, you know, back to the comment about rising tide lifts all boats. If that's not the case this year, there's going to be more differentiation. Not every stock or every company is going to have a great outcome in terms of earnings. Um, and, and when we take away some of the accommodation that we've seen over the last couple of years, both fiscal and monetary, that does also support an environment that should be um, one of, of more differentiation between companies as opposed to um, everyone's a winner. Mira, other than what the Federal Reserve does and the fiscal policy that comes out of Washington, is it, do you guys spend a lot of time when you, when you do your projections for a coming year of what might happen politically in D.C.? I mean, do you, do you look at the midterm elections? Do you, do you look at, as you mentioned earlier, the Build Back Better deal getting done? You know, how those things affect the economy? Or at a certain point, is all that white noise and you try to make projections in spite of what you think might happen in D.C.? We tend to focus much more on policy, you know, monetary, fiscal, you know, build back better, things like that that are likely to have more meaningful impacts in the long run on the economy and markets over politics. Certainly, politics does help shape some of that policy. But I think that what politics does is it does create some amount of uncertainty in markets. And what we tend to see um, after you know, almost every single election uh, barring a few, is that markets tend to rise regardless of the political outcome after an election because it clears some of that uncertainty. And some of those notable exceptions happen to be during periods where we were in the midst or the throes of a recession or a market correction driven by completely different factors. So I, I would say that the, the biggest impact that politics tends to have um, is that uncertainty that it creates for markets. Um, and ultimately having that certainty regardless of the outcome is important. Now, that being said, when we think about the impact on policy, um, I don't think it's too controversial of a statement to say that we, we probably are, are headed into an environment of a divided government after the 2022 midterms, given the fact that the Democrats majority in, in both the Senate and the House is razor thin. Um, and, and some of the redistricting we've already seen could, uh, could tip the scales as it is. So we will, of course, have to see how that all plays out, not making any predictions here. But given the fact that that is a, a very possible outcome, um, what that means is that we've seen so much policy uh, from a fiscal standpoint in the past year or so, not only because of COVID, but because you have that beginning part of administration where you really want to try to get as much done as you can. And 2022 is a year where if Build Back Better doesn't get done within the first quarter, ultimately the rest of the year is going to start to gear towards a little bit more focus on the midterms itself. And if we do get a divided government, probably looking at some more political gridlock, which means we probably won't see any truly meaningful um, policy that's going to impact uh, the economy and markets for the, for the remainder of the term. Mira, um, we look at today, and today does not make the year, but the NASDAQ had a pretty rough day, and primarily, I think, because uh, interest rates popped, the uh, 10-year interest rate popped. Um, I think that's kind of an indicator of what we can expect going forward. Does the Fed create the environment for the significant pullback? It could. And the Fed is in a very tricky position this year, because if we looked at the, the economic fundamentals today, um, that could make the case to say, well, we're, we're, we're near full employment and we have certainly seen higher inflation. It could create the conditions in which interest rate hikes are warranted. The challenge is by the time we get to the summer, by the time you know the Fed finishes its tapering process in March and we have this open uh, slate for when rate hikes could potentially start, we might also start to see economic data change. Growth starts slowing down closer to 2%. Um, inflation potentially starting to moderate. We've seen very strong consumer demand 
but that also is likely to, to come off the boil. And as those dynamics are shifting, we also wouldn't want to see necessarily a too aggressive Fed that could hurt growth in, in some way. So it's going to be really important what the Fed chooses to do and how it chooses to do it in 2022, something we'll be watching particularly carefully. But what I'd also say is, Look, it's, it's taking a while for rates to grind higher. I mean, we, we expected that um, rates would, would be closer to 2% um, potentially by the end of 2021. And, and we might not be in that environment until the end of, of 2022. So it could be a while before rates are seriously damaging um, to, to areas of the market that are more growth oriented. So when we think about things like tech, um, or, or perhaps healthcare, uh, interest rates are just one piece of the puzzle. Uh, we really want to focus on the fact that some of these companies have great profits and, and really good track records of profitability um, and great business prospects for the long run. So we want to consider all of those factors when we think about different sectors. And if I could do a quick follow-up, Mike, um, with the election in November, would we really expect the Fed to be aggressively tightening pre-election? Well, that has actually been a, a something that our team has has been debating quite a bit because our thinking was, you know, probably wouldn't see too many rate hikes in the fall time frame. Maybe wait to clear the election itself before you saw the first rate hike. But given the fact that tapering has been accelerated and and should end by March, um, that leaves several months. And given the fact that we've seen this inflation overshoot that's been sustained and that being acknowledged by Chair Powell. Um, we still could see some, some tightening despite the political calendar. Look, it's not ideal um, for, for the Fed to, to necessarily be um, taking action so close to an election. Maybe you could see a pause as we get closer to the election if we saw rate hikes earlier than that. But ultimately, uh, the, the, the Fed has to be squarely focused on its two mandates, uh, full employment and, and price stability. And if those conditions uh, should you know be appropriate for rate hiking, then that that has to be the priority. Mira, we spent some time earlier talking about the 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 um, the workforce and people coming back to work. You know, Dominic and I spent a lot of time talking to retirees, and more often than not, and Dom, tell me if you agree or not. My clients, our clients, are now frustrated and angry that they literally feel like they've lost two years of their life and two years of their retirement dreams are basically out the window. And there's a lot of pent up demand and a lot of money that's on the sidelines that's waiting to be spent by an army of retirees. Um, you guys kind of in your analysis, see the same thing and, 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 and feel the same way in terms of when people are able to get back to normal. We've certainly seen that that consumer demand has really been fueled into goods in the absence of being able to spend on services. So this pent up demand for services continues to get pushed out. We do expect at some point to see um, a more meaningful uh, uptick in services as people start to enjoy restaurants and travel in the way that we were hoping to start enjoying them in a more normal fashion after last summer. Um, so we do expect to some degree of pent-up demand for services to start coming through. I think the question is, in aggregate with the consumer, um, how much wherewithal will be there, um, given the fact that a lot of that's been funneled into goods? And, and slowly that, that cushion from some of the fiscal um, spending um, is being eroded by consumers. So we do expect that at some point next year, demand is just going to come off the boil, not necessarily collapse, but perhaps not be as strong as it is today and as it has been for the last couple of months. So maybe some steam from the services recovery has been taken by goods, but nonetheless, we do expect that there's going to be some greater degree of, of, of recovery within services in 2022. So Mary, we have like a minute and a half left. So I don't want to put you on the spot, but can you kind of sum up in about 30 to 45 seconds what we what we covered tonight and what our clients could hopefully expect for the next coming year? Sure. The economy still does look on solid footing for 2022. We expect decent growth rates, even if they're starting to moderate. We expect pretty robust earnings, and that should be supportive for stocks. 
But it is important to remember that both fiscal and monetary policy are going to be less accommodative in 2022. And what that means is we potentially could see a bit more volatility in the markets, which means it's all the more important, whether it's stocks or bonds, to be really careful and selective in our investments. Uh, brilliant. Uh, so we tell our clients cautiously optimistic for, the, for this year, not as good as last on the equity performance, but cautiously optimistic. It sounds like you guys are on the same page. I think that's right. Mary, thank you. We kind of say it every week, but, but the time really flew by and we can't thank you enough for your time this evening. Thanks so much for having me. I would love and hopefully you'll accept an invitation to come back. We'd love to continue this conversation. Absolutely. Have a great evening and happy new year. Thanks, Mary. We'll be right back. When you're thinking about where to park your cash, for over 30 years in the business, I've been a fan of funds like the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's managed for cash and designed so the interest income you receive is free from federal taxes. And who doesn't love paying less taxes? Mike, generating interest that's free from federal taxes is appealing. But I've been in this business for a long time, and people love the potential for more income on their hard-earned cash. Sorry, Dom. But the beauty of the fund is paying less taxes on cash. No, my friend, it's the potential for more income. Mm -mm. Less taxes. More income. Less taxes. More income. Less For taxes. your cash, more ask your advisor mm -mm. about the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. Less taxes. Or find out more at dcmadvisors.com. Well, Dom, one thing I know we agree on, it's not what you earn. It's what you keep. Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. Symbol L-E-T-A-X. Latax. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax-exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors, LLC, and Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC. All right, I'm Michael Hartsman, back with Dominic. And you know, Dom, a lot of our clients are confused, they're frustrated, they're skeptical, they're, they're surprised. They, they, what do we do for an encore? Is it really going to go up again this year? It's got to end. You know, we hear everything. And just have someone like Mira on who just brings a lot of information, a wealth of knowledge, and just common sense message to what I said before with some of the smartest people in a room believe has got to be a breath of fresh air for our clients tonight. And I, and I would only add uh, calming. I, I, I mean, I took her words and look, she said some things that, that you know, it, it might frighten some people, right? A 14% correction. We know how clients reacted when the S&P was down five, right? So a 14 would be significant or anything above 10 would be significant. And um, I heard one analyst call it gut-wrenching. Yeah, we might have some of those moments, right? But but it doesn't look like the economy is going to fall off a cliff. And if it doesn't, which is highly unlikely that it will, I think Mira was entirely correct. Um, we should be able to have a respectable year in our client portfolios. Maybe not as good as last year. That, that, that was a, you know, an outlier. No one expected last year. But, but we should have a very decent year if we could stay the course. And, and I said earlier in the show that eight of the last 10 years for the market were up. And really, it would have been nine out of 10 years, but the, the sell-off in 2018 was literally in December. Yeah. And, and, and there was no time to recover. So it's not even so much um, if we have a sell-off, but when in the year do we have a sell-off? And, and does the market have time to get its feedback on the, from, it, from it? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a big part of it, Mike. You brought it up. I mean, we we just uh, today was the official end of the Santa Claus rally, and you got that extra push in in all the major indices the last week of the year. And we closed down the portfolios, and we started again on January first. But boy, it was nice to have that positive returns in the portfolio, even if we got that little extra in December. We don't know how this year is going to play out, but I think the Fed, and we, we spent a lot of time talking about it tonight, I think the Fed and its commentary and its actions are going to maybe put a little fright in the market. That should happen earlier rather than later. I do agree, agree with Mira. We might see a little pause towards the end, which will help us towards year-end recovery. Um, maybe we get lucky. I'll take lucky if we get it, um, but we hopefully end in a good spot at the end of this year. And you alluded to it, and I agree with you. You know, and, 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 and again, to, to echo what Mira said, not to make light of the healthcare crisis in this country and, and the fact that millions of people are, are sick and some sicker than others. But Dominic, this variant will give the Fed some cover and, and maybe not to raise interest rates as aggressively as quick and quickly as they might have. As I said, you alluded to it when we were speaking to her, and I think you're spot on. It could, you know, just to kind of cover it again, it could soften the GDP number in the first quarter. Economic growth is not going to be as vibrant. Maybe people are not spending money or not able to spend money, right? We talked about hotels and travel, vacationing. Um, so it, it could give the Fed the argument that, hey, we can be a little softer in our approach. Um, and then I really, really, my heart believe we get close anywhere close to the election. They're not going to want to intervene. They're not going to seem like they're taking sides on this uh, election and they might take a pause, just let it all settle down and then maybe do another raise in December. So we may not be getting as aggressive a Fed as some people think. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. And, and I use this expression all the time on the show and with my clients. If, if expectations are baked in the cake and expectations are part of the process as we make projections then the market could absorb them, right? It's it's when it's when something happens unexpected that jolts the market that could sometimes rip the um, the underpinning off of it. And and again, that's where the volatility comes in, right? But it's always our job to try to soften that, both in how we allocate the portfolios and how we deal with and treat our clients and our clients' expectations and. Hopefully we're sitting here a year from now with, with good results. But I think we've gotten off to a decent start so far. And at least for, to the horizon, things don't look so bad. No, they, they, they don't. And we'll continue this conversation, obviously, as the year goes along. I think Mira was a great start to, uh, sure. to give us some projections for, for 2022, Dom. Her projection, JP Morgan's uh, uh, ideas, I think listening to the experts, that's why we put them on every week, Mike. And if nothing else, they give us a little insight. I think tonight we got some terrific insight. I agree with you. And on that note, my friend, we are out of time. Again. <laughs> I'm looking forward to next week, Mike. So good night, everyone. We'll see you down the road. Thanks for tuning in to the Labenthal Report. 